welcome to episode 279 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Michael O'Malley. And Gabby Lewis. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be getting near the conclusion of our Best of the Decade series with the year 2018. Because uh, I'm sure people who have listened to this podcast for a while didn't, you know, forgot about our thoughts about 2018. So we're going to bring those back, you know, retro. Um, let's go ahead and jump in. We got a bunch of big movies that came out over the Christmas holiday. I'm going to start with probably the smallest one, and that is the uh, latest Star Wars movie. The finale of the Skywalker saga, which Disney created in order to make this feel more important. Um, uh, Hold on. Can I can I like pause about that? The finale. This is the third time that I've been told that this is the last Star Wars movie. <laughs> is, does this one feel any more or less definitively? It's not the, the last Star Wars movie. Book? Listen, we're, 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 we're working in a capitalistic system. We're going to get so much more. This is just the last of like the Luke Skywalker, Leia, Han Solo, all that, like these people series. So there'll be Star Wars after this, but this is like the end of all. Of like, So you got the prequels and then you got the original trilogy and then you got this one. This is the last of like all those movies. I'll believe it when I yeah, don't see it. Right. <laughs> it's it, but at the same time, it's Disney, so you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, but yeah, this is Star Wars: Rise of the Rise of Skywalker. Uh, J.J. Abrams came back to direct this one after um, a bunch of man babies complained about Ryan Johnson's movie. That was the last one. Uh, I think Andrew and I are going to get more in depth on this uh, next week. He he saw the movie as well and actually rewatched the entire like series of movies with Jesse. Um, and so I think we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, next in next week's episode. But I wanted to just talk real briefly about this one. I was not a fan at all of this movie. Um, this is kind of like the epitome of fan service. Like I was a big I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty strong fan and defender of The Last Jedi. I think it's still very much a corporate product, but when it comes to corporate products, especially Star Wars corporate products, it's probably your best case scenario of a Star Wars corporate product. Like it kind of has some interesting ideas. It really has like a a strong philosophy to it that you don't necessarily see in not only Star Wars movies, but just like big budget blockbuster Disney movies in general. And I think it kind of took the like this concept of Star Wars, the mythology of Star Wars, into an interesting direction where it was less on like the importance of uh, lineage and kind of the the made up mythos of why people should care about these characters, and was uh, it was it was much more about um, what the strength of, of why this mythology works and why people are kind of compelled to it. Naturally that angered all of the, the people who like didn't want to think. And so, uh, <laughs> they brought JJ Abrams in. He kind of, cor- he pretty much took that and course corrected everything. And, uh, this kind of feels like it's literally, it's just pretty much literally in dialogue with that movie and trying to correct everything that, people did not agree with or in terms of the direction that the last movie took um you know just i don't know it, it just it it, it it starts out with an incomprehensible 30 minutes where it's just kind of like running through all of these different sequences um and trying to uh streamline this whole plot where the emperor character who people know from 
uh, the first two trilogies of movies has like been reborn, even though he fell down a giant shaft and was, you know, killed by Darth Vader in the original trilogy. He's like come back and he's been behind all of the evil in these in this series of movies and they got to stop him. And I was just like, why? <laughs> and so um, the 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 one interesting tidbit that I will t- I'll say before I move on from this, like I said, we'll talk about it more in depth. I wrote it. I wrote a review. It's on cinematary.com. It's pr- it's not very good. So I wouldn't I, I mean, if you want to go look at it, you can. I don't really think it's that great. So you can skip it if you would like to. Um, but the one thing that I was thinking about that I actually read a review on Letterboxd that was talking about. And this, because this is, I think the more interesting question about Star Wars, especially in this iteration, is more about like the outside of Star Wars than what's actually happening on screen. Because what's happening on screen is pretty, like, especially this just feels so, you know, run through the Disney machine at this point. Um, and the, the interesting thing, though, and I was reading this review, was about kind of what good and bad means, like, within this Star Wars universe. Because, I mean, you have this iteration of space Nazis, because that's what they are. They're space Nazis. And uh, you have, like, the good side. and But the you have this kind of... Um, you, this undefined good and this undefined bad and the review was kind of getting at the point of um and i guess i can probably kind of pull it up to the the review is by eaton uh weisvogel who has actually written stuff about or written stuff for cemetery but he had this really uh interesting point where he was talking about how the good and bad is just so very superficial in a way you know the good the good people as he says in, in, you know, in this film good and evil are matters of attitude not ma- matters of ideology the good care about their friends cry for them when they die cheer when they inevitably inevitably come back carry out their duties with passion enjoy keep their energies up with humor the bad sulk rage backstab given to their worst instincts the message is simple as long as you carry yourself with the right attitude you will always be on the side of the good and I was thinking about that and how that's kind of become not the default just for Star Wars, but the, the default for our blockbusters in general, where there's no strong ideology within the the good and the bad. It's just, it's literally you're good because you feel like you're good inside, not because there's any like concrete moral reasons why this person is better than this person. Um, and I was thinking about how that's such a massive disservice to just our mythology in general because like that's the that's the role of mythology and folklore over just the history of storytelling is it's it's supposed to kind of give you this moral standing of this is good and this is bad and kind of interrogate society in a way that makes you kind of reflect on how you know where you fit within the the micro you know that whole that whole space and I feel like having this like vague, we need to please everything mentality is just, again, this is not just a Star Wars thing. This is a, I think just a cultural thing. And I was thinking, I was thinking about that review a lot after reading it, um, that this is just kind of an example of where our blockbusters are headed because we just, there's no moral, there's no ideological or moral center to any, any of this. It's just, if you feel like you're good, you're a good person and i'm just kind of like nope that's not how it is (laughs) um so yeah rise of skywalker it's in theaters now um i don't recommend seeing it quite honestly go watch something else so 
It's a stupid. It's such a stupid. It's and, and if you if we want to talk about technical stuff, it's so poorly directed. I mean, I don't even know. It's the the action scenes are are, are I, I've seen like better edited TikToks than I've seen action sequences in this movie. I swear to God, it's bad. Um, yeah, it's 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 no good. It's um, disappointing. Michael, I'd be kind of curious to hear your thoughts on. I don't know if you're a big Star Wars person, but I think as somebody who like watches a lot of like not only just like blockbusters but like disney blockbusters i'd be kind of curious to get your thoughts on where this is headed in terms of uh what they're trying to do with this franchise under the whole disney you know umbrella because yeah i used to be a huge star wars fan like reading the extended universe novels and everything so um i've I've fallen out of that but middle school me was was hardcore into this and (laughs) yeah i'm gonna see it I know Nathan has was was kind of a similar person. Uh, he's become so, so I know so soured on it. So like I said, we'll probably talk about it next week. So I'll be curious to uh, to hear some thoughts. But that's my just my initial thing. The movie I'd much rather talk about because it's much more interesting is Little Women, which also came out on Christmas weekend uh, or Christmas week, and it's the follow up by Greta Gerwig to Lady Bird. She wrote and directed this. It's the adaptation of. Um, Louisa May Alcott's novel, um, which has been adapted many, many times. Um, but this this version stars Saoirse Ronan, uh, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Laura Dern, uh, Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, uh, Chris Cooper, Bob Odenkirk, Tracy Letts. It has a bunch of people, a bunch of crossover with Lady Bird as well. And for those who are unfamiliar with the story, it tells uh, it follows these four sisters who live in Massachusetts, who are coming of age uh, in in the United States. Uh, the the story it it bounces between seven years before and the present. Uh, there the the present for them is kind of about seven to ten years removed from the Civil War. Um, the the when they bounce back into the past a lot, and it, it's uh, they're dealing a lot with their father is has left to uh, to go fight for the Union. Um, and they're just at home with their mother who's played by Laura Dern um, and like I mean it's for the most part it's just the, the kind of their lives um, I don't I don't really feel like going too much this has, been, <laughs> this has been adapted like a thousand times and I feel like people probably at least know the story of Little Women what I I really um, I haven't watched many of the other uh, adaptations of this but I really enjoyed this version I mean I was a big fan of Lady Bird I can see why Greta Gerwig was interested in this I mean, this is a movie that's kind of overwhelmed with passion and um, female camaraderie and just uh, it's just a for, for a movie that has a lot of kind of sad, bittersweet, melancholic moments. It's a very uplifting, positive, inspiring movie. I think it's helped. It's aided a lot by, uh, you know, performances by like Saoirse Ronan, who um very much carries herself with like that strong-willed passionate attitude that her her character in Lady Bird has it seems she seems like a natural it seems like a natural progression in terms of character and why she would take this role um but I think and I, but I think all of the actresses from Emma Watson to Florence Pugh to Eliza Scanlon who plays the fourth sister like just just their um just them together and the the spirit that they all have in terms of kind of making it through uh solving problems having um Laura Dern as kind of this uh this kind of matriarchal 
um, saintly character. It's just one of those movies where you have all of these different faces and you have all of these different um, events happening. The movie moves very quickly. I've seen a lot of people kind of complaining about the editing in it. They, uh, the editing honestly didn't bother me too much. I feel like this is probably a conversation to talk about with um no offense to you all, but with people who have like seen the movie, I think it moves at like this pace where it, it, it it's a movie that's about kind of tying memories to the present and tying the past to the present. And it, it has kind of this frenetic energy where it shifts from in one moment, it's, you know, seven years in the past. And then the next moment it's in the present. And I feel like that turned a lot of people off and a lot of people complain about the editing style. But to me, it, it worked because I think, as like a movie that's that's trying to recollect and um you know make sense of memories i think that that kind of the the frantic energy of that just seems natural i don't think there's any like i i, I don't know it's, to me it makes more sense to kind of work to to kind of function in that in that way rather than like kind of slowing it down and, and letting everything kind of um roll out in this kind of long drawn um fashion i don't think that's kind of what greta gerwig wants to accomplish i mean it didn't seem like the same thing she wanted to do in ladybird um this was a movie i really really enjoyed didn't people complain about the ladybird as well i think so um i don't know if it's the same editor um it's let me see it's Let's see if it's the same guy who did Lady. It is the same person. Um, yeah, because that's really sharply edited. It'll a lot of the scenes, you know, kind of almost cut short in, in really striking ways in Lady Bird. I, it it does that a little bit, but I think I again, like I said, I think to me it made it made sense within what it was trying to accomplish, and I think that it's able to establish um, the settings through not only just kind of telling what the performances are, but what the actresses are doing in terms of performances, whether they're, you know, 13 years old, 20 years old. Um, but also just through the, just, just through basic mise-en-scene. I mean, it's just the lighting you can tell. Um, there's this really, uh, this is really fantastic moment late in the film where, um, it's a similar, it's a similar situation where, uh, uh, you know, something happens with one of the characters and first you, you have, it's kind of in the flashback, you have this kind of warm coloring and, uh, the Sir Sharonin character is going downstairs and is worried about what happens. And it's like this very positive moment. And you can tell she's kind of recollecting that because then in the second, you know, it cuts to the, to the present day and she's kind of reacting to the scene in a similar fashion, but you can just tell from the lighting and the way that, uh, Gerwig sets up the entire sequence that it's set up in the same way, but you can just, you're cued by the lighting that it's in in a much more negative light than what you saw before. Um, And I think she has a lot of moments like that where she's kind of telling you through the, you know, the cinematic techniques, um, what she's trying to tell you, what she's trying to say and what she's trying to say at like what time period it is. Um, I think it's a really smart movie. I think it's a, it's a, you know, 
for for being like an adaptation of kind of an older novel i think she's able to infuse a modern spirit into it without like overmatching it and i think that she and she's able to kind of keep it modern while also keeping it engaging she's not like trying to make it like a pbs masterpiece um you know movie so i really enjoyed it um i would recommend people go and check it out but uh little women it's in theaters now so yeah very much very much recommend that um but michael i'm going to toss it over to you you saw two movies this past week yeah um so the first movie i saw um which is probably the more likely of the two that people have heard of although they both are they're both on netflix and both have had some marketing through netflix um the first one i saw is uh the most recent bob dylan documentary directed by martin scorsese um and so the title of this movie is Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. Like that's the whole title, um, apparently, according to Wikipedia and the title card in the movie. Um, and uh, this movie is about in the mid 70s, so like 1974 and 75, uh, Bob Dylan went on the Rolling Thunder Review, Thunder Review concert tour um, in which basically he kind of was reflecting that like he'd been playing lots of big cities and he felt like he had gotten away from like um, where people could actually see him, you know, unless they wanted to buy like tickets to Madison square garden or something like that. Um, And so he arranged this, um, uh, this tour, it was really idiosyncratic tour where you go intentionally to like smaller venues, like somewhere in Hartford, Connecticut, or like uh, upstate New York or um, Tallahassee, Florida, or, you know, places places that are like not like a list, like concert cities. Um, and he would go and perform, um, in those cities and in intentionally small venues. Um, and while at the same time doing this really like kind of cryptic, like theatrics on stage. Um, so he like wore this like white face makeup the whole time. And like, he would bring up like he had this like revolving door of musicians who he'd collaborate with on stage, like Joan Baez uh, or uh, well, Allen Ginsberg is not a musician, but Allen Ginsberg would show up and do like poetry um, and things like that. Um, so um, I was not super, I'm, I'm familiar with Bob Dylan's studio recordings of like this time. So this is like around the time of desire. Um, and I think right before, or right after blood on the tracks, but uh, regardless, um, I was familiar with the studio recordings, but I didn't know a ton about this, uh, this concert tour. Um, I guess if you had been following the bootleg, ta- um, the bootleg series that Bob Dylan has been putting out, um, it was live, live recordings from this tour were part of the bootleg series. Um, so the, the movie itself kind of goes back and forth between, um, live footage of like Bob Dylan and like his, his company performing at these venues. Um, these really energetic, like impassioned performances that are like, you know, strikingly different than the studio recordings. Like, so he'll do like, uh, like old songs, like, you know, um, like, uh, Mr. Tambourine man or something like that, but it's with rock instrumentation. Um, like this kind of like mid seventies, like Southern rock sound. Um, and, uh, you know, he's of course got like hurricane and the desire stuff. Um, so like, that's really exciting. Um, but then the concert or the documentary also, um, switches to uh, talking head performance or not performances, talking head interviews from present day. So he has like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and different people who are involved, like reminiscing on the tour. Um, and then he also has uh, behind the scenes footage. Um, 
which is sort of spliced in from a movie that I guess Bob Dylan directed, which I hadn't heard of until this movie came out, but the movie is called Ronaldo and Clara, which was Bob Dylan wrote and directed it and it starred him and Joan Baez. Um, and they filmed it during the, the tour. Um, so that's all really interesting. But the hook of this documentary is that the, uh, a lot of this, or, or it, a lot of the talking head footage that's reminiscing over the tour is faked. Um, and so you have a documentary where for instance, Sharon Stone, uh, is interviewed and she is saying that she was in this, like on the met Bob Dylan on this tour and Bob Dylan, wrote songs about her and stuff like that. And it's all just completely like uh, fallacious. Um, but the documentary doesn't signal that that's the case. Um, and uh, there's other things too. So like the, uh, the footage from the movie is staged as if, or presented as if like, this is actual real stuff that happened on the, on the tour. When in reality it was, you know, kind of from, from a, a scripted fictional movie um, just cut. So it seems like it's, you know, Bob Dylan and Joe Baez just talking backstage um so it's this really tricky movie especially for someone like me who's not like super familiar with the tour to uh to engage with because it's like a documentary that is full of fiction um which i thought was like honestly i thought it was great um because it really gets into the spirit of a lot of the fun things about bob dylan like the kind of like mythology about bob dylan um you know because there's a lot of information about bob dylan that bob dylan himself personal like intentionally like obscured about himself um and a lot of you know bob dylan's stance with the press throughout his career has been kind of adversarial and like telling half truths and things like that and so like this documentary really feels in the spirit of like what bob dylan is interested in um and i i just think that that's really really interesting on a conceptual level and it's just really fun like once you get once you start like picking up on like a lot of this stuff is not true um, or if you have like Wikipedia open or reading about it, it's, it's kind of hilarious and audacious. So like, uh, Sharon Stone is sitting there saying that like, uh, Bob Dylan wrote just like a woman about her, um, which doesn't, the math of like Sharon Stone's age and, and the release of that song doesn't add up at all. Uh, and so it's just like really, really hilarious in this playful way. Um, so the, I, I think this movie is great because it works a, as like a great concert doc. Cause you see all this like amazing, like footage of like Bob Dylan and, uh, Joni Mitchell and people playing. Um, but B, it also works as this weird, like conceptual piece about like the identity of Bob Dylan. Um, and it's very fun and playful. And, um, I think it's way better than the other, um, Bob Dylan documentary that, that uh, Martin Scorsese directed, which is called No Direction Home, which is like fine, but it's very like buttoned up and straight laced and stuff. Um, this is very playful and off, uh, off the cuff and weird, um, in a way that seems to fit with the spirit of both the, the, Rolling Thunder Review Tour, and also just Bob Dylan himself. So that's on Netflix. Um, I think it's a great time. It's it's like two and a half hours long, but it, at least for me, it didn't feel uh, it didn't feel that long because it, it's a pretty bit briskly paced movie with like the concert footage spliced with the the other stuff. Um, so that's one movie I, I saw, um, which is good. Uh, the other movie, and I, I won't go as long on this one, um, is also on Netflix. Uh, it's called Atlantics. It's the debut feature by um, a woman uh, whose name I'm going to mispronounce because it's French. And I don't do great with French, uh, but it's like Mati Diop. Diop. I don't know. She was an actress on 35 Shots of Rum, uh, the Claire Denis movie. Um, yeah. I've seen that. So that's mm -hmm. where I knew her from. But uh, so this is her debut 
feature, I believe. Um, yes. Uh, and it is set in Senegal. And it's this kind of strange, magical, realist story um, that begins with the labor dispute uh, among a bunch of construction workers who have been busy uh, constructing this enormous skyscraper and apparently have not been getting paid. Um, and so there, you know, there, there's like a several minutes of like, you know, kind of um, the grumbling among the workers who then all return home. And when um, the workers return home, we follow this one worker um, who is in a romantic relationship with um, the woman who uh, turns out to be our protagonist, um, a woman whose name I am forgetting. Oh, it's uh, Ada, uh, a woman whose name is Ada. And the thing with Ada is that she's in love with this man, uh, but she's betrothed to somebody else. Um, and so there's this kind of conventional veneer over the movie where you have these, you know, this uh, forbidden love almost because, um, you know, her uh, her fiance is is rich and her family wants her to be with him and all this sort of stuff. And this guy is a construction worker and, you know, et cetera. Um, but um, about probably 15 or 20 minutes into the movie, um, it starts getting kind of strange. So uh, the construction workers all leave the town basically in protest of like, we are tired of not being paid. So they all leave on a boat um, without telling any of their loved ones or whatever, because they're, I guess they're going to go find work elsewhere or something. Um, it's a little opaque because we're following the, the people left behind rather than the people who, um, who leave. Um, and then as soon as they leave, just strange things start happening. Um, increasingly so over the movie, um, you get people like starting to be like what appears to be possessed. You get people who like get taken with this mysterious illness. That's like a fever. Um, you get like strange visitations where like people will say they saw something and they didn't. Um, and it all kind of culminates in kind of, um, this interesting thing that kind of tries to tie together the romantic elements of the story and the, the kind of political labor um, elements of the story. Um, and, uh, I, I thought it was really good. It, um, it takes a little while to get going. Like when I first thought it was, so I wasn't as interested. And once it gets into the kind of, uh, uh, supernatural stuff, I think it gets much more interesting, but throughout, uh, the film just looks gorgeous. It is, um, really lushly filmed. Uh, you get, uh, it's not a particularly like slow movie or a, uh, you know, like an impenetrable art house movie or something, but you'll get occasionally just these shots of like just the sea, like the horizon with like the sun um, that are just gorgeous or, or random household objects will get like a shot that's just a couple of seconds long. And it's always staged really interesting and framed really interestingly. Um, there's um, a scene that's in a bar that kind of becomes a motif throughout the movie where the bar just has these like, almost like you see those, like projected Christmas lights people have on their house, um, like the yellow or not the yellow, the green and blue Christmas like projection lights that they'll have. And the whole bar is just a wash in those. And so all the characters walking through the bar are just like covered in these like luminescent uh, dots. And it, it just looks really gorgeous. And then eventually the story goes some pretty interesting places as well. So um, like I said, this is also on Netflix. Um, it's definitely the one that's been less advertised by Netflix, but both of them were recommended to me by the algorithm. So, uh, perhaps they will be recommended to you too. Cool. Now I've heard, uh, great stuff about Atlantics. I think it played, um, if not TIFF at one of the, the film festivals and it got, I've seen it on a lot of people's top 10 it lists. It was up for like the Palm d'Or at Cannes, Oh, cool. That might've been it. Um, I think because... 
I might let me let me pull up Wikipedia because uh, I thought I read this when I was in the page. Um, yeah, so uh, the director, whose name I'm going to butcher, but Nati um, Diop, um, she I guess is the first black woman to ever be a director whose film was um, featured in competition at Cannes. That that is uh, you know it's it's Cannes. <laughs> the can's not really on the uh the good side of history ever so uh <laughs> yeah um it, i guess it won the grand prix as well very cool uh yeah no i've heard nothing but good stuff i, I it's one that i've been meaning to catch up with uh so very nice um gabby you had a couple that you wanted to see we uh the first one was knives out which we talked about a little bit on the pod a couple weeks ago but i'm curious to get your perspective on it yeah, um, I really like this movie, actually. Uh, this I love the the idea of it being just like a modern whodunit. Uh, for those unfamiliar with like the narrative of the story, it's um, it, after the mysterious and apparent suicide of a fiction uh, mystery writer, um, a private detective has been called in to look over the case and see if there's any foul play. Um, I, it's incredible to see how many people are in this film. Uh, it's, it has Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, like Lakeith Stanfield. Um, it's it has like an incredible range of different people and abilities, and I like that they come from a lot of different genres of film, and so they're all coming together in this place and having this very clue feeling, but in, in an updated way that makes it feel like really immersive. Um, so as the story unfolds, you you. <laughs> I don't want to like share anything because this movie hasn't really been out for like too long um only for about a month or so um but it really kind of engages everybody in the audience as far as like not allowing you to be settled with one thing like there everyone has a motive really everyone has opportunity um this mystery writer um, his name is harlan thrumby is just seen as just like this almost oracle of like money and things and, and people are have and you see like just a pattern of people using and abusing him in order to get what they want and then at the very end he's using that and just completely changing the situation on a lot of different people which gives them the opportunity to to strike back at him um it was really interesting seeing Daniel Craig with a southern accent. It kind of threw me off guard at first because as soon as he opened his mouth, like he's like, well, hello there. You know, I do declare. Let's figure out this thing. And he's supposed <laughs> to be a French detective, too. So that really, I mean, his name is Detective Blanc. Um, and even Chris Evans' character in it was like, so let Froghorn log, uh, Leghorn in here. And it's just, but I like that little addition to him as a person. And it was just something that I think that, widen my perception of Daniel Craig because I mean every other time I just see him in a like fancy ass suit kicking ass you know um, so like just seeing him in a comedic role was really amazing as well um, but yeah I saw I saw an interview that said uh, <laughs> with Ryan Johnson the director who said that in the script he wrote like just kind of a subtle southern accent and then Daniel Craig came in with that and they were and it made everybody laugh so they were like yeah, yeah. we're leaving that in because that's hilarious I, I definitely get it because it, it added just like a sense of just of course there's like the the mystery of the murder but then it's just a sense of whimsy in that like you can enjoy this while it's still being a pretty serious topic as far as you know an apparent suicide um and i like that they also did not 
shy away from the characterizations of just shitty entitled people. <laughs> um, and there is a, a woman that was uh, helping Harlan and she became his really good friend. Um, her name was Marta within the film. And like every single family member, they had like professed that she was family. They had known her for years, but every single one of them got her like country of origin wrong. They were like, oh yeah, she's like a Mexican or like, oh yeah, she's like some kind of Guatemalan or something. And it, just little things like, or that's not little, but you know, just there are markers everywhere where it's just like leading up to their just complete <laughs> lack of awareness in not only what they're or in some sense it is a complete awareness but they just don't care um but they made a point of including different not only stereotypes but different um perspectives of uh labeled people so like they were making fun of sjw's at the same time they were making fun of one of the character's son is like this little want to punch you in the face like teen nazi and they were making fun of him because he was acting like a little brat and trolling people online and they're like what are you doing you're 13 sit down like and, and made a point of poking fun at all of these different people that you know for whatever reason have they feel as though they have a moral high ground um even you know tony collette is um one of or the daughter-in-law of harlan and she is just in one scene you know see like praising like the proud immigrants that we have but then in another one like being like oh, marta can you get me something please i'm going to go meditate in my room you know so it's just playing both sides of and and demonstrating how both sides have weaknesses as far as any kind of moral superiority because that doesn't really exist when you're surrounded in a situation of entitlement um it is like i i just i think that it's a really good movie if you just want to enjoy a story without necessarily having to be 100% emotionally invested as in like this movie's not going to make me cry <laughs> it'll make me laugh more than anything else but then you still feel like a part of it and there are still moments where you just cringe while you're watching it that I really enjoy as well um, I would definitely recommend watching it and just at, at the very least being able to see you know Chris Evans his character Ransom act like a total brat I think that he had a lot of fun playing his character Ransom as just like this entitled shit boy just especially after being Captain America he can just be like this horrible person and kind of relish in it and I think that he really did throughout his performance so I really like that as well um, but I, I would definitely kind of recommend something if you just want to enjoy a story and engage with it on a, a not 100% emotionally investing level as far as pain, <laughs> um, but just pure enjoyment. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a really for for like it's I, I think I thought we talked about it whenever it came out. Um, it's a it's like the a great kind of you know cast kind of big big premise not really big premise but like like a big studio movie that is not you know marvel disney etc that's just kind of fun that i think everybody who i've talked to has gone and seen is it's been like kind of a fun theater going experience and i feel like we need more of those that aren't we need more movies kind of like this that are outside the disney realm of like products that are in the movie theater like this is a nice kind of alternative And I like that it isn't just, it doesn't, I don't know if there will ever be a sequel or anything like that, but it's completely unnecessary for it to have one. Like, it it doesn't have to extend into this, like, 
crazy long franchise. It can just be on its own. And I really kind of appreciated that, especially after so many different franchises that have been coming out. Although a lot of them have been fantastic and they have produced really good films, it can be kind of tiring to be like, oh shit, okay, so I need to watch the seventh film of this, you know, of, you know, and being able to kind <laughs> yeah. of section out independent stories and then having them be contained in a single film sometimes can just be really refreshing. And I think it was for this one as well. I have a confession yeah, to not- make. Which is that, that every Thanksgiving weekend, um, I had the choice to see this or Frozen 2. And I saw Frozen 2. Michael, no. I'm sorry to let you Michael, know. Michael, no. Well, t- I, <laughs> that was Frozen 2. The, the decision was really made because of Showtimes, um, not because of one movie over the other. But I'm part of the problem, Zach. You, you and everybody else that has a kid, I'm sure. <laughs> I love that the voice actors for um, Elsa, or like, yeah, the voice actors for Elsa just publicly apologized to all of these parents. She's like, I'm so sorry. I, I did this to you. Your kids are going to be seeing this for the rest of their lives. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> and just being completely upfront with her, just like, you know, involvement. And he's like, this is your part of your life now. I can't even tell you how many times I've seen the first Frozen. It was one of my niece's favorite movies. And after a while, she got tired of watching it in English. So she started switching it up and be like, you know what? I'm going to watch Frozen in Spanish. It started like you know doing that, or in, like in French, so she can mix it up, but it's still the same thing. So you're still hearing "Let It Go" sixty-seven times in a day. Just now, it's in Spanish or French. So yeah, this is another topic, but I really enjoy listening to the uh, dubs on cartoons for different languages because the uh, voice actors always have like a different take on what the character should be like. Um, I think that's always very fun, but I personally wouldn't really watch Frozen and. Yeah, it's yeah. It's cool to hear the different voices, but yeah, after hearing "Let It Go" in Spanish already, it's like, all right, this is I'm good. I'm extra good on it. <laughs> Very cool. Um, well, we're we're getting kind of tight on time, so we're gonna go ahead and head into part two. Uh, but we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back talking about 2018 after this. <laughs> Cinematariats, this is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shoutouts on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. First, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating and our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, share with your friends and family, and sign up to be a patron. We would truly appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. 
and we are back with part two of episode 279 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Best of the Decade series with 2018. Uh, refresh off this one. We talk. If you would like to go back, you're, you're welcome to listen to our Best of the of the 2018 movies podcast that we did last year. But uh, I figure we can talk a little bit about. Um, there's a few topics that we're going to kind of do that kind of carry over from 2018. They, they, you know, they move around throughout the decade, but also I think that 2018 is a good uh, placeholder to, to kind of talk about them. Um, the first is kind of where faith-based movies lie within the past decade. And I think that you have a movie that came out in 2018 that I believe was our highest ranked movie on cinema. I can't remember. It's, you know, so long ago. It's God's Not Dead 3. We love that movie. It, it was honestly Andrew's favorite movie of all time, but he would just be quiet about it. Um, he still hasn't figured out if he's dead or not. Uh, but <laughs> the, the, the movie is First Reformed, the uh, film written and directed by Paul Schrader. It starred Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried. Uh, we talked extensively about that last year. Nathan had a really good review on the site. Um, but I feel like you kind of have like these two brands of faith-based movies. Cause I think you have like the movie, like first reformed another of like that elk that I would throw in there is the, um, John Michael McDonough movie from 2016 or 2015, uh, Calvary with Brendan Gleeson. Um, you kind of have like these types of faith-based movies, which very much are like reckoning with religion and faith and, uh, the kind of the tenets that you would assume most, most faith-based movies would have. But then you also have the God's, not dead i can only imagine i saw a preview when i went and saw little women for some movie called i still believe about like some dude who's a christian singer who's like girlfriend's gonna die in in uh the hospital which and he has to you know he like prays to save her so you have like these uh this brand of faith-based movie that seems to appeal more to the church-going crowd as like a event to get church groups out to the movie theaters, but also appeal to kind of that more evangelical, evangelical ilk of uh, moviegoers. But um, Michael, I know this was a, a topic that you brought up kind of in relation to first reform. So I'm kind of curious, uh, I guess, first, what you made of that movie. And then second, you know, what you've made of the kind of the faith based genre at large over the past decade. I mean, I think first Reformed is great. I, probably contributed i don't remember what i voted for last year but i probably contributed to it being the the favorite movie of cemetery um but uh so first form is very good and it involves like you know the stuff that i so i so i'm a christian i go to church and all this and the stuff that i find meaningful about faith appears in first reformed right so this you know real um uh wrestling with really complex moral topics and um, the, you know, just, just feelings of like, you know, reflection and then even like the kind of stuff that I'm sure like, you know, churches would tend to tend to not like happen, but definitely do in the faith experience as well. Like, you know, crippling doubt, um, you know, uh, that, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, as, uh, Ethan Hawke's character finds like, you know, butting your head up against like the kind of uh, bureaucratic, self-sustaining system that is like, you know, any sort of organization, but certainly um, churches as well. Um, so I, I, I love First Reformed quite a bit. Um, and I think it presents a really um, compelling view of like the psychological realities of like, you know, being a Christian in the modern day. Um, 
whereas God's not dead and it's ilk. I mean, those things are basically like they're they're satanic. I'm basically, (laughs) I hate them (laughs) so much. Um, (laughs) And I, I hate them for a lot of reasons. Like one suck uh, on a, just an aesthetic level. There's no sense of like a image or, or anything, especially the first one, um, which I think came out in 2014. Um, but uh, also just as far as like, you know, their, their depiction of religion goes and, and the Christian faith, I think is just so uh, incredibly bland and shallow, even within the milieu that they're doing, which like first reformed is like a kind of um, uh, it's not high church, but you know, it's a, basically a mainline, you know, church uh, in first reformed, which is much different from like the evangelical Christian context that like a, uh, God's not dead is working in, but even within, you know, the evangelical framework, which is much different from like a mainline framework, it is just such a tedious depiction of that. Um, and, uh, really, uh, bizarrely like uh, offensive one too. Um, this is God's not dead three came out in 2018. So I guess we can talk about that, but like the first two movies are actually like, uh, maybe more like were their worst movies for sure. Um, I've watched all three of them as a, like a hate watch thing. Um, but the first one involves like the, this, you know, the kind of meme that you may have heard of if you grew up in like conservative evangelical spaces, which I did, um, where, you know, there's this atheist philosophy professor and he has all the students the first day of philosophy class, right? God is dead because that's, um, definitely what Nietzsche meant when he said that, um, you know, and by by God is dead, he means that God doesn't exist, and I'm gonna. You guys have to uh, admit that God doesn't exist um, in order to pass my class. And so, like this movie is like, you know, this student has to debate this philosophy professor who's just this raging atheist who is not even like a real atheist. By the end of the movie, like it turns out that he's just mad at God because uh, someone in his family died or something like that, and so he's mad at God about that. You know. Um, and then by the end of the movie, he's hit by a car and as he's like bleeding out on the sidewalk, some pastor runs up and saves him. Um, and, and he says like the sinner's prayer and then dies. Um, and so it's just like incredibly offensive and a very shallow engagement with, um, you know, the ideas of atheism and any sort of faith outside of like evangelical Christian faith. And, uh, just as different from first reformed as you can imagine. Um, and, but I think that these movies are interesting to talk about um, because they're really important movies, like culturally, I think uh, in ways that don't get discussed because they suck. Like these movies suck. So obviously people aren't going to talk about them who aren't like it's target audience. But like if you go through, so pure Flix, um is the uh, studio that produced God's not dead. Um, and God's not dead was it's like big, uh, claim to fame, although it had been producing movies for several years prior to that. But um, with God's Not Dead, it um, found like basically a, a cash cow. Um, so God's Not Dead had a budget of $2 million, but got $64 million in the box office. A huge, uh, that's a huge profit margin. And all of these movies, all these Christian movies are made on the cheap and have huge margins of profit. Um, and in some movies, so like there's a movie, this isn't a pure flicks movie. Um, this is a movie called, uh, 
Heaven is for Real by what's called Affirm Films, which is a Sony um, imprint. Not imprint, that's publishing, but uh, it's a Sony subsidiary. Um, uh, this movie, Heaven is for Real, which came out in 2014, the same year as the first God's Not Dead movie, it has a budget of $12 million and grosses over $100 million. Um, so, like, a lot of people see these movies, and I think it's under-discussed, like, the um, just the impact these movies have on, like, film culture in general, um, which I think is pretty big. Um, you know, I, I think that there's there's now, like, a whole, like, subgenre of, like, movies by conservatives for conservatives that I think is sort of um, uh, couched in like what God's Not Dead and that sort of thing do. Because um, if you look at like the 2000s, there are some faith-based movies that do good business, like Facing the Giants and stuff like that, but they're not ideologically motivated. So Facing the Giants, you have like, it's all about the power of prayer and et cetera, um, which is just just kind of blandly Christian. But with with these kind of movies like God's Not Dead, um, there's a real like conservative uh, chip on its shoulder regarding its stance toward culture at large, and uh, this like really combative stance, which I think is kind of probably born out of its coming out of you know the the Obama years when you know, evangelical Christianity really doubled down on the persecution complex. But I mean, I think that it, that that whole stance toward toward culture. Um, where you have to create your own media and a sort of separate ecosystem that's antagonistic toward, uh, you know, the quote unquote, like mainstream is like really pernicious and widespread. And like, there's even a pure flicks, uh, streaming service, which I think like, um, kind of, uh, encapsulates like the, the role of streaming services now, which is like each one is starting to increasingly find its own niche. Um, whether that's, you know, a Disney niche or, a uh, you know, a whatever niche, like this is the conservative Christian niche of streaming services. Um, I, I mean, I just think these movies are endlessly fascinating to talk about just on a cultural level. I don't, I've talked a lot that I should open up the floor for somebody else. It's interesting that you say that as, as far as like, um, conservative audiences having like their own subsect as well because it reminds me a lot of the the all the controversy with the hallmark films that have been coming out recently and how you know people have freaked out because you know there was one that featured you know a jewish couple and in the movie it was all about how the jewish couple had to you know give up parts of their culture in order to be like you know what you just need more christmas that's really about it you know and just like or you see these ladies kissing i don't think so you know it, and it's always just kind of an affront of like you know i'm going to believe what i'm going to believe in either people have to fall in line of that or accept that and respect that without any of the same courtesy being extended and like that's what really bothered me about this movie is like one of the characters who um it was like the the young muslim woman who like you know became became a secret christian and then her dad just freaked out and then you know disowned her it was just being horrible to her or you know even like setting up the antagonist as being an atheist professor of atheist philosophy professor where it's just like you know what you i just have to prove a point to prove it like because there's no no it's it's not even like a any sense of 
it, and it, it's not any sense of realism in that like we're not even going to the movies for realism but if i'm watching a movie and my atheist philosophy professor is like you know what you have to do to fi- uh, to pass my class sign a paper that says god is dead then immediately it's like and his whole achieving moment is just pro- quote unquote proving that he's not it's just this whole argument is completely asinine in that like even if he was alive or whatever i'm just trying to pass a class man like or you know and just putting your students through that or feeling so persecuted that you have to go through all this trouble and then you know having the students at the end all stand up and be like god is dead solidarity yeah and then walk out and it's like what what is this <laughs> yeah <laughs> like for it, it's worth noting i mean you bring up the this is a, for a very specific people you bring up yeah. the muslim character and it's worth noting like you know the first two and the, the third one's a little bit different i don't know if you've seen it but like the first two like are all premised on like anything that's not christian is bad um so you, the second movie has like the aclu come in um and they're just like like you know lucifer incarnate you know um and then you of course have the muslim family in this one who is like just immediately abusive to their child as soon as they divert from like you know uh the beliefs of, of islam and there's no acknowledgement that Christianity is capable of the same abuses or anything like that. Um, it's just this really starkly defined, like Christians are right. Everybody else is terrible. The end. And I hate it. <laughs> Which is, it's, it's, it's such a, uh, you know, stark difference from something of like the first reformed uh, Calvary or even another one I would toss in there from this past year, a hidden life ilk, which are movies that are very much none of them. I feel like are, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll be wrong on first reform, but none of them are necessarily anti-Christian. It's just, it, it's much more um, in investigating, uh, you know, the difference between, what religion is and what like having faith is and like the degrees, the the levels of difficulty it is to kind of keep uh, that the strength and faith, um, which I, I I agree with you, Michael, I find to be remarkably more compelling than anything like a God's not dead or any of those other uh, movies of that same, you know, fashion are presenting you because at, at the end of the day, those are, those are pretty much just like, you know, evangelical fantasies that they're, you know, they're putting in the movie theaters, it's just something that kind of, it's, it's not really challenging them on, on, on anything. It's just kind of affirming their, the position that they already had coming in the movie theater. It's not leaving them with any questions or, or, uh, you know, any, literally anything that they have to think about. And that's what, that's why I, I've really enjoyed Calvary first reformed and a hidden life because those are movies that kind of provoke this level of, um, thought related to faith especially faith like in like you said the, the you know modern culture where um i think that the the kind of the direction that the that the that a lot of evangelicals are taking it's it's a lot more about what's on a moral level than you know showing up in you know having a showing up at church and having like a a cross necklace you know it's it's kind of it's i think that those movies the narratives themselves are compelling because it's kind of making you reckon with your level of faith and how dedicated you are to um those tenets um and i think something like first reformed also like 
it does it it goes another level just because it it adds that um like you had mentioned that the, at the, at the top the kind of bureaucratic capitalistic level where which is something that uh it's kind of interesting that a lot of churches are, are dealing with because you you have a lot of that where um let me just give an example. So I was in church for for Christmas Eve this year, and I wasn't there for the for the sermon because I don't one live where I was at Christmas Eve, but also I don't go to church. And uh, the pastor was talking about how he gave the sermon in November about politics, and I was and how he's like, I know everybody was groaning because what's this pastor got to say? And I was like, Well, you shouldn't be ashamed of that. Literally, pastors from the beginning of time have been getting political, but that's fine. Um, and he and he literally made the statement where um, he 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 pretty much said, uh, "Don't worry about which political party you align on, as long as you trust in Jesus, you're fine." Wait, man, I went and, to a Christmas service that said basically the same thing, <laughs> right? Ooh. So I guess that was the that was the theme of this Christmas Eve, and and it, I I feel like that's it, that's just again going into. I, I I bring up this example because I think that that's go. This is going into the kind of bureaucratic, capitalistic side of churches today. Because I guarantee, one, he 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 is he's wanting to like not offend people, but also he's he's probably getting the the voices from upstairs going. Um, you know, you you can't offend this large swath of the congregation because that's where the money is. Like you can't, you're, you're, you're about to also, you just did the offering plate, you know, a, a turn before this, you can't offend all those people who just donated all this money into the different church initiatives. And I feel like that's something that first reform does on, on, on that's really interesting that, um, I think it's something that the, that a lot that, that, that the Christian church, especially in America really has to kind of, that's that's a facet that uh, I would like to see more of, and that I think that's kind of an, an interesting take that that movie or direction that movie goes into. Right, and I think it's telling that like you know the the hook I guess of of God's Not Dead and like several of these other Christian movies is the idea that like you know culture has moved on from Christianity and is antagonistic to Christianity. So what does it mean to you know be a Christian in a culture like this? Um, and uh, first reformed and, and a movie like silence, which is another, I think of the great like faith films of the last decade. Um, or like, you know, some of the other ones you mentioned are kind of about that. Like, you know, these movies are definitely about like people of faith who are adrift in a, in a culture that, you know, doesn't really, they're, they're no longer at the center of the culture. Right. Um, and it's, it's, you know, in a lot of respects, it's about that. Like how, how does a person of faith navigate a world that's either indifferent or antagonistic toward your beliefs? Um, and so in a way, these movies are about the same thing, but which ones did the conservative Christians come out in droves to, to get, you know, $100 million in the box office for? It was the ones that ultimately had nothing critical or self-reflexive to say about Christianity. You know, there, there's nothing, there, there was no challenge to the Christian hierarchy. The answer to how do you engage with culture is you fight culture because it's wrong, not that you, you self-reflect or anything like that. And I... Um, you know, that, that feels like a microcosm of like in general, a lot of the, um, just the, uh, Christian culture of the, the 2010s that, that I experienced. And so, um, 
I, I am always refreshed when something like First Reformed comes around. Yeah. Uh, Gabby, what did, have you uh, seen First Reformed? What did you make of that movie? Yeah, um, I did see it. I really liked it a lot. Um, I... I personally like, I'm not a religious person either, but I can really appreciate and they have religious people in compromising positions of like, yeah, now you have to acknowledge that one, you know, in a lot of different ways, your religion and not necessarily, you know, your religion has been used as a weapon against a lot of people and a lot of harm has come from that. You have to acknowledge that, you know, and at the same time, it's not always easy or uh, even it doesn't even feel like it's worth it to believe in something like this. So I love the the fact that they allow for, you know, uh, the care Ethan Hawke's character to just really engage in that. It's like, what am I even doing? Because you should be like, that's the whole point, right? Of, of even faith in itself is even when you are tested, you, you find a way to validate it, but you have to be critical of it as well. And just thinking about other religious films that have come out, I mean, it dogma came out in 99, but I love that movie and it's interesting to see how much criticism that movie gets, but ultimately it is not an anti-Christian movie at all. It, it's a movie that's actually praising the, a lot of really good things about it, but then also taking a critical eye and looking at things that have been perpetuated because of that, or just, you know, how people have been manipulating any kind of message in order to justify doing horrible things. And I, I like when they take a moment to to stand back and say, okay, look, it's, we as people, we are human beings. And if we are given a, in, or if we're put in a situation of free will, then we're going to do what we're going to do. So how do you navigate that? And I did not expect, like, it felt, it was very, like, dark in, in the best kind of ways. It, it reminds me a lot of the, I wish I remembered the name, but it's the Jake Gyllenhaal movie where he is, of a detective and he's trying to find the little girls. Um, I, it, it's, I, I'm going to remember it in a minute, but I, where it just like takes moments where people are at their worst or at one of their lowest points. I like the fact that they included, you know, his addiction to alcohol because that's a reality that a lot of people don't want to confront. Um, as far as like being in a religious situation or not, but especially when you, people are looking to you um, as like a leader of a church, and especially because the church isn't doing well and he's using, you know, the house of God essentially as a form of making money because people are going there as more of a tourist destination than being a practitioner in the church. But then also being directly confronted when the, envir- the environmentalist or, um, essentially terrorist since he was trying to hurt other people as well you know um since he took on the mantra of that but at the same time recognizing that it's like it's not just it's on one hand trying to put forward the belief system of like are we correct like are we actually good stewards of the earth because i mean especially through climate change in a lot of different ways we are destroying god's creation this is directly our fault so how can we can we start over like god has done multiple times and just wipe everybody out and start over or like is this like a message that is what is that what you're saying or you're acknowledging that it's it's there is just no such thing as like clear-cut morality in that um so I, I definitely appreciate it. And it was just like a, 
a visually beautiful movie too. I didn't expect that, or I didn't expect so much detail to be put on that. But then, like researching the director and stuff, I'm like, okay, that definitely makes sense, and that it has the depth of character and just the depth of cinematography that makes it a really compelling movie to watch. Although it was afterwards and seeing the ending and not really knowing, even the director has said like, I, I want it to be completely an opportunity for viewers to make it an interpretation instead of just this is what happened. And I love that it, you get a chance to decide for yourself whether, you know, Ethan Hawke's character kills himself or not, uh, whether he's with Amanda Seyfried or not, you know, it, and allows for that moral and narrative ambiguity to kind of come together in that, like, was he even a good person or is he validated in his extremism when you can see what has led up to that and at the same time acknowledging, like, yeah, I mean, maybe you can try and justify it, but you are doing things directly to hurt other people in the name of what you know so i i enjoyed this movie more than i thought um i have to admit that like sometimes with religious movies i have to have that like little caveat especially because i'm not religious and i'm sometimes expecting it to be a situation where it's like god's not dead or something like that but then this gave a really like subtle look into just a person being a person instead of this is completely right it's this is real you know like i i appreciate the realness of it before we move on uh i have a question have any of you guys seen god's not dead 3 which is actually the one that came out in 2018 i haven't seen i'll be honest i haven't seen any of them so no (laughs) god's not dead 3 is super interesting because it's not good but um it does kind of address some of the stuff that um we were just talking about how, like, you know, the other movies aren't like self critical or anything like that. Um, God's Night Three is the only one that admits that the church has is capable of abuse, and it, there's a whole character who's like left the faith because the the church did some really terrible stuff to, to them. Um, and then the kid from the first movie comes back, um, and like the student from the first movie, and he's like woke now, and he's talking about how Jesus is a social justice warrior, and we should be like him. Um, it's it's kind of wild. Um, it's not particularly good and it still has a sort of like, a, uh, you know, um, it's still like kind of affirming to an obnoxious degree of like evangelicalism, but it's a really interesting instance of like, I don't even know, like it just went complete. The, the franchise basically took a complete left turn with this movie. Uh, it's like a completely different creative team too and everything. Um, anyway, it's not good. Watch first reform instead. But it's interesting. <laughs> that should be the takeaway for all of the this people listening to so far. The majority of this part two. Um, the the next topic I kind of wanted to shift to because this has been really on its head uh, really in 2019 uh, with Martin Scorsese and his comments about movie theaters and Disney, etc. Um, after he his latest movie, The Irishman, came out on Netflix, but. Um, there's a couple other auteurs who kind of made the the shift to streaming, specifically with Netflix, kind of giving them. I feel like for, for with Kiran as well, just like a blank check to kind of make their you know the a movie that they've been wanting to make forever. So you have uh, Alfonso Kiran with Roma, which of course they pushed really hard uh, for the Oscar, and then you have the Coen Brothers who made the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, which initially was actually like planned as like a TV series, but then uh, ended up becoming a movie, which is like the like weird like reversal of what we talked about last week. Um, 
but I mean, do you do what? Do, do you all have any any thoughts on kind of these uh, these directors who? Um, are kind of going to streaming services because the streaming services, specifically Netflix, especially with like Huron and, and Scorsese are going like, yeah, you can just whatever you need, like you can make this passion project that you want to make. Here's a blank check um, and kind of how that fits into the whole movie theaters, movie theaters are dying, that whole kind of debate, because on one side, I mean, like with something like The Irishman, like I agree with Scorsese's like take that this would not have been made like in the studio system. Like this is the only way that it's going to be made, even though it has to be on Netflix. But at the same time, like hearing people who are like breaking it up into chunks and not sitting. Th- I mean, I, I got to see I, I luckily got to see it in a movie theater and it was worth it because um, I mean, if you watch it at home, you just have that thread of, you know, checking your phone or just not paying attention. And I feel like it pays off to like be like in there you know, committed to it for that runtime. Um, but at the same, you know, it's kind of like a, it's like a catch 22 at the same time, his movie, that movie that probably wasn't made if Netflix didn't intervene. So, um, I don't know. Do you all have kind of any thoughts on, on these directors heading to streaming services in order to make these big projects that they've been looking to do? I would rather see them in theaters too, but kind of like you, Zach, I, if it's between them not being made or, um, them being on Netflix or wherever I I'd rather have them on Netflix. Um, something that doesn't get brought up as much, um, is how, and I, this is not a defense of Netflix, which I think has been actively antagonistic toward a lot of things I like, you know, a, IE movie theaters, you know, um, they got into a lot of heat for whether their, their intent to, you know, destroy the conventional movie experience. And then when they tried to, you know, switch to these prestige films, like the movie theater chains kind of, reacted against that, um, accordingly. Um, and so like, I'm not, this is not like a glorification of Netflix, but one thing I will say is that even if these movies had gone to theaters, um, through traditional means, they probably would not have been accessible to as many people as they were on Netflix. Um, you know, so case in point, um, I used to live in Jackson, Tennessee, um, cause that's where I went to college and there was two movie theaters there and they all would just show, basically, um, you know, like, you know, big studio blockbusters, um, there, you get a few of the like Oscar movies. Um, but very rarely would you get any of the ones that were like, you know, anything other than, um, you know, just, just the broadest stuff. Like I remember getting zero dark 30, you know, and that was kind of unique that we got that movie. Uh, and it wasn't just another, you know, uh, big blockbuster. Um, that was the sort of like Oscar movies you get. And so uh, Netflix was really like a, a very positive presence in my life then because it allowed me to have access to movies that would never, ever have made it to Jackson, Tennessee. And if I didn't want to drive to Memphis, then like Netflix was my next best option. And so like with the movie like Roma, not English language, um, in, in black and white, even if that had been re- released in theaters, I mean, that would have just been the same you know, who, who would have watched that movie? Probably not any more people who already did. It would just be the pe- the critics would have gotten to see it in their preferred um, venue rather than on Netflix. And I think that there's something to be said for if something is on Netflix, it's more likely to be watched by someone provided Netflix advertises it enough, which they certainly did with Roma. Um, it's not always the case with their direct to streaming movies, but um, I would rather see them in a theater too but I do think that more people watch these movies when they're on 
Netflix. Yeah, especially with like the Irishman. I mean, there, there. I'm sure more people are catching it on Netflix, where they, even though it's, uh, you know, it's probably making Scorsese sick. They're, you know, watching it in like three or four parts or whatever, like breaking it up. At the end of the day, I guess they're still watching it. So it's like, is that? <laughs> would you rather that? It's like that's the kind of question I feel like we're headed to. Would you rather they watch it? but break it up or watch it like on their own terms or would you rather they just not watch it, you know, within the parameters that you would like to see them? I mean, to, I- right. Cause I mean, it's not just, it's not just the studio systems paying money for, for these movies to be made. It's that these movies are distributed by the studio system in ways that are inherently like hierarchical, you know, you go to New York and LA and then you kind of roll out to the big metropolitan areas, you know, with these kinds of movies, you're not going to go, for the most part, you're not going to go to, um, you know, even, even mid-sized, you know, kind of towns, um, the way that studios and, and theater chains have chosen to do distribution is everybody gets the really expensive movies. Only a few, few areas get the, um, the, you know, the movies that didn't cost as much. And so when people talk about like the death of the mid budget, drama or whatever. I mean, I think the distribution needs to be in, in conversation with that because, you know, I can tell you in Jackson, Tennessee, we weren't getting Coen brothers movies. You know, I didn't get a serious man in uh, Jackson, Tennessee when I was living there. Um, and it's not that I didn't want to watch it. It's that literally they wouldn't let me watch it. Um, and so I, 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 I have so many conflicting feelings about this because I think Netflix does a lot of harm, but you know, ultimately they are like in some ways democratizing viewing in a way that's kind of interesting and that the studio system refuses to do, honestly. Yeah. Um, Gabby, do you have any thoughts on this? I know because uh, you live in Atlanta, so they're a little bit better in terms. I mean, they're not New York or L.A. in terms of releases, but um, something a lot of the smaller kind of mid-range movies that um are going to get missed in like Jackson or even here in Savannah, uh, at least get a shot on screens in Atlanta, just because they're, I guess they, they, there's a little bit more in terms of interest and uh, opportunities with the, with the theater layout there. Right. And they, you know, it of course definitely depends on what the movie is um, and different theaters have like different release times and stuff like that. And I honestly love going to the movies. It's one of my favorite things to do um, and actually be in that space. I will say though, I really can appreciate Netflix in that or just directors going straight to Netflix um, for television shows, but films as well. In that like, it gives you more of an opportunity to understand and be with the material. When I watch a movie in the movie theater, you know, I can't control any part of the environment around me. So, I mean, like, honestly, it can be some person like texting on their phone, you know, five rows down and I can see it and it's driving me crazy or it can, you know, like the environment, the environment may not be able to be controlled or, you know, like things can always happen as far as you missing something or, or just, you know, things are cut a certain way. But then Netflix gives you the opportunity to not only control your environment as far as like pausing or fast forwarding or whatever, but also just 
if you're ready to be really a part of it, then you have the opportunity to, if you need to go back and, and understand what they're even saying. Cause I mean like half the time that people would struggle with watching movies, it's because they had missed something visually or audibly. And uh, especially when things are really highly important, you want to be able to fully be a part of it. And so like, I can definitely appreciate not only content wise, but just like logistically wise, uh, directors would like to have opportunities to be on Netflix and Netflix affords like a lot of different uh, more or it seems that it just affords more risk and that you're able to try different things and be able to have this space to you know if if this is the worst thing ever ultimately there are hundreds of other things on any kind of streaming site that somebody can just click out of and just be done it's like you don't have to fully invest yourself in I don't want to watch this movie anymore I don't feel gypped in that like I paid a certain amount for a ticket or something like that and this isn't the experience that I wanted but at the same time that I can still be a part of this um, and it, it is kind of sad though uh, directors may have perceived viewers seeing it as far as like movie theater versus Netflix but at the same time ultimately I think that you know like you guys said before it, it would be better to come into contact with it at all in any capacity than just you know not having either the opportunity to see it or it not being conducive to you actually you know uh, enjoying it for yourself one thing i will say uh that's maybe critical of netflix's approach um is uh the topic of like netflix bloat or in general just the idea that it's not always the best idea to let a director or an artist do everything that they want sometimes the like constraints of like you know the studio system or whatever are sometimes artistically beneficial um so like you mentioned that the coen brothers um were gonna turn i'm not sure if this is on air or not um but that the coen brothers were gonna turn the ballad of buster scruggs um it, originally it was going to be a tv series but then they cut it down to a, a a feature film and i think that there are many many examples of the opposite happening where these you know kind of prestigious directors were given you know a budget to make a mini series on netflix or whatever and they just did it regardless of whether or not it should have been a movie um the the idea the thing that's coming to mind for me is uh, the errol morris documentary series wormwood which i think is uh, a great example of a feature film stretched into a miniseries um, to its detriment. Um, and I think that a lot of times these Netflix movies um, and or series suffer from like not enough um, constraints. And so the artist sometimes is allowed to do kind of indulgent things or just really slack pacing or um, in their TV, a lot of times this results in like episode structures that are very slack and kind of uh, blur together. Um, so like, you know, whereas the Coen brothers did choose to like, you know, edit their series down into, to a movie. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's always true of people who, that Netflix gives a blank check to. And, um, I don't feel this way, but certainly there's probably someone out there who feels like the, the Irishman could have been shorter. Um, and probably the studio, if it had been released theatrically would have made it shorter. Um, and it would have been interesting to see like, you know, does the, you know, what does that do to the movie? Because I think once you get on Netflix and there's no real reason to have a movie be a certain length, um, that leads to some interesting formal stuff, um, but it can also just lead to just a lack of of discipline as far as like what actually gets put into the the film. And so I think that there are a lot of examples of the Netflix strategy 
not always serving the the best interests of the movie. I, I've heard some people say that in term related to the Irishman. I mean, they're wrong, but <laughs> I've heard people say that. Yeah, I disagree as well. But I've I've, I've definitely heard that comment made. So, um, cool. Well, I think I think that we you know that's uh it'll be something that will probably come up. That's not going to be like this is the end of the conversation, because I think especially as the uh, the theaters become more, well, at this point, more just Disney movies. Um, you know, they're gonna, they're, people are gonna have to find other avenues when it comes to watching that kind, of, that other fair. And it seems like, as much as Martin Scorsese and people in New York and LA want us to see it in theaters, uh, the rest of the country is gonna be like, well, that sounds great for New York and LA people, but uh, <laughs> we have to, we don't have the same uh, abilities and same amenities that you have. So I apologize. Well, and also the the trained habits, you know, if you start training people not that the movie theater is just for Marvel movies or whatever, then that's just what they're going to be looking for at the movies as well. Um, and I, I think that there's a sort of relationship here that, you know, if the movie, the kind of movies you like are increasingly on Netflix, you're going to quit even checking out what's at the theater. Yeah. And it's also not to, to to defend the movie theaters like this beautiful sanctified space. Also, movie theaters kind of suck sometimes because they, they like they're just kind of like I don't know about here. I don't know about you all, but here it's just like you have those movie theaters where it's just you have like one uh, kiosk open. It feels like the whole place, the rest of the the building is like a dust town, and they treat it that way. Um, you know. Spring, it's a little bit, you know, come on, theaters, you know, get on, get on your level as well. Uh, I feel like, but, um, cool. Well, I believe this will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. Um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, on Instagram at, at cinematary, and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, check out the Patreon channel. We have our new film theory and chill. We talked about Tales of Sound and Fury, the essay by the late uh, film uh, theor- theorist and historian Tomas Elsesser. Uh, we just posted that on Christmas Day. So if you were looking for a nice little, uh, you know, get out of, you've been hanging out with the family for a long time. You want to listen to some film theory? We got that for you. Uh, go to Patreon.com/slash/Cinematary. Thank you so much to our patrons: Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Chris Metcalf, Cindy Roberts, Eric Dukowski, Graham Jones, Harry Eskin, Maggie. Marie Barty, Matthew Lingo, Miranda Barnwall, uh, Ron Hayes, Tyler Chandler, Whitney Real Ross. Thank you so much for supporting the the website and supporting the show. Uh, we'll have hopefully some more good stuff for you all in the uh, in the new year. But next week we will be kicking off 2020. This is the last Cinematary episode of 2019, guys. So uh, we're going to be kicking off 2020 with the end of our best of the, of the decade series. And that is our best of 2019 episode. Um, we'll be breaking down the top 10 of the year. So as picked by the cinematary participants, so it'll be an interesting one, but yeah, until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>